You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Good day and welcome to Topco Business Unusual Podcast. You, 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 you're a founder, you're a speaker, professor at Harvard. I mean, so, you've so, had 3,500 innovations. A big, I, I suppose a big issue in both Africa and South Africa. We, we have a, a lot of frugal innovation. I suppose there's two parts to innovation here. One's the frugal innovation and one's the corporate innovation. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose a lot of what we see is the challenge for these entrepreneurs is there's not the funding mechanisms that are in the States. And so um, they, they, they're really lean, you know, they're, and I think one yeah. of the problems that I also see is there, there seems to be this mindset certainly in South Africa, of not really embracing sales in terms of when they when they build a product. They're so fixated with the product, the building, yes. um, that they there seems to be this attitude against sales, like sales is a dirty word or something. Um, yep. And so for many of them, where they get stuck is they come to us and we help them connect them to either founders or other companies. And, and you know, we see that that sales role is so valuable. And so I really think that bringing in the sales element in terms of the product development is really, really critical. So, so this, is the, this is the interesting angle, though, is that, that it's really, but like, first of all, most, most people who like to build product, they're, they're, they're introverts. They're, 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 like you said, they're obsessed with the product. They're not obsessed with the problem. And, and so part of this is that what I try to do is get people to start to become obsessed with the problem they're trying to solve, not the solution they have. Because... Nine times out of 10, most startups have to pivot one way or another, right? And so how do you get them to actually understand what is the progress your customers are trying to make? And so it's, this is where it, like, what's interesting is I named it demand-side sales, but it really, I wanted to make it demand-side buying, but, it, but my, my publisher basically said, like, nobody's going to buy, nobody will know what that is. So I had to use the word sales in it to get people to buy it, if you will. But the, but the reality is like, well, all I'm really talking about in demand side sales is what we need to understand is how will people, why will people buy our product and, and how will it help them make progress in their life? And that we should be setting up our sales process to match the way people want to buy, not match the way we want to sell. And so, yeah. and so to your, to your point is that a lot of people assume, well, if I just build the best product, people will know what it's supposed to intuitively, they'll know how to buy it. <laughs> but let's be clear. We still have to sell people an iPhone. <laughs> we certainly do. And I think that it's, it's, it's almost getting through. I think that, and, and I think you've mentioned it before, you know, and it's something that interests me as well is, you know, there's no sort of university that's teaching sales. Um, and I suppose one of the things that led me to you was I was looking for something that had a more robust sales process. And I was looking at the sand, the sales process. Yep. And then I, and, and, a, and a friend of my brother's who introduced me, to, he was coached by, and you did a, a, a group podcast with him yes. and that's actually how i found out about you as well yeah. i knew about jobs to be done i you know i sort of read uh, um clayton's two of his books yeah and so it, it sort of all came together and i remember watching the podcast and doing some research afterwards and i thought wow wouldn't it be amazing to get you to speak to 
the African audience around what you're doing. But then something remarkable also happened is that I actually learned a little bit about you personally. Yeah. And it, and it touched me personally because um, my my son, when he was three years old, he we we hosted the Western Province, which is a provincial surfing team, at our yeah. house, and we okay. went off to work. We went off to work, and it was my son who was part of the team, and we had a, a young boy, three, and the other boy who was seven. And while we were away, um, my my young boy, the, the boys were jumping off the balcony onto a trampoline. Uh oh. And the three-year-old, yeah, you are, oh, yeah. So I already know what's going to happen. So, so yeah. is he okay? Yeah, he's okay. And I think that um, you know, obviously he's fifteen now, big boy. Yeah. And um, he obviously has gone through numerous challenges that they gave him medication and all that sort of stuff. And I said, listen, this boy is so unhappy. There's no freaking way. And he kept on, I suppose, saying, "Dad, I think I'm struggling at school. I don't like reading. I'm really struggling." And um, and can I go back on those tablets? And I said, no, boy, there's another way. And then when I also saw your story as well, then I I I, I showed him that part of of things. So and it really has changed his life. I must tell you, you're a big inspiration. Well, for that as well. To, so I thank would love you. to meet him. I would love to meet him if I can. He's help him the most. Anyway. Oh man, I've got goosebumps. So I'm, uh, He's the so most I'm, beautiful so I'm a, person. I'm a big. I'm a big. I was. I was always a big kid. Like I. I'm in the midst of, uh, of uh, I'll say, uh, taking care of 30 years of not taking care of my body. And so I'm, I'm literally almost down to 200 pounds, which is, uh, I, I don't know if you're in the imperial system or not, but it's like, one of the things is, is I haven't been this weight since middle school. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and part of it was the weight was a way in which to protect myself because I, I, I'm very much an introvert and I have to be extroverted out, but the weight was one of those things of like the notion of like trying to not tell people that I couldn't read and like I had to hide all the time. And so I realized the part of me being able to get healthier is for me to kind of admit my weaknesses, but at some point celebrate my strengths. And so one of the things I, I, I always think about is that my mom would always say that for everything bad that happens, there's always a good thing inside it. Mm. So if you look at the pandemic, you can say, God, the pandemic was horrible. But what are the good things that happened around the pandemic? I got closer with my family. I got a healthier. Mm. Like there's a whole bunch of things that the pandemic that did for me was good. And so this mm. is where where I feel like this notion of, teaching your son how to see what I call the glass half full as opposed to half empty is a very powerful way in which to one make him comfortable with who he is and what like I always think about like things happen to me for a reason and now I have to be able to figure out what I'm supposed to do with what I've been dealt so if I can help him in any way I would love to do that yeah, man. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. I'll, I'm going to take you up on that offer. Yep. I must just tell you, he, he learned to cook when he was five. See, the accident happened when he was three. And my wife freaked out. She said, he's, he's going to have a problem with his life. I said, no, no, no. I mean, maybe I was ignorant. <laughs> he's not going to have a problem. But, um, well, but I, think, the, I think we've come to terms that it, it did have an impact. I think we had that honest conversation. Yeah. That, But there's other things he can do. It's not limiting in other ways, so um... I, I would. I was told when I graduated from uh, high school that I should be a baggage handler at the airport. And my, my so the I'll tell you the biggest, most important thing to me is I have these four mentors that that 
I, I, I've met in my life. And one of the things is, is that because I can't read, I, I ask questions and I got really good at asking questions. And one of the reasons why I have these mentors is, is because I would go in and ask them a question that nobody would ask them. And they, they actually befriended all, all of them befriended me because I would cause them to think deeper than some of the most, like I met Dr. Deming when I was 18 years old. It's crazy. And, 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 and I sat down with him and I asked him the way he said it is he goes, you asked me 52 questions in 22 minutes. You are a curious kid. <laughs> and that, and then he turned to me and said, how'd you like to work for me for the summer? I mean, like I didn't go in there looking for a job. I went in there going like, who is this guy? Like I, I thought he was one of my friend's grandparents. I had no idea who he was. And so it was crazy. just genuine curiosity. And so I just think the thing is, is like we, we, as parents, we can't control, like we, our job is to protect our children, but more importantly, our, our job is to prepare our children to do the, the best that they can with whatever they've been dealt with. And so they're, all of our children are different. And so how do we help them find out who they are and who they're not and help them have the confidence to make the right decisions, right? Yeah. So I, th well, I think, uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I have a camera thing, but I sometimes I forget to switch it back. <laughs> it's fine. So, um, um, I love those guys, by the way. Yep. So, um, so that, you know, my, my thing is, is that, that it's it, like, so one is tell your wife not to worry. Your son will be fine. He like the, the thing you have to be able to teach him is how to make good decisions. Right. And how yeah. to respect people. And once that happens, the rest of it all will fall together. <laughs> For sure. And so, um, look, so the, the, the basic story, you know, but it's like, I'm a dyslexic, illiterate kid at 18 years old. And those four mentors poured into me their knowledge to enable me to go work on 3,500 different, uh, different innovations. I mean, I've worked on the space shuttle. I've worked on, you know, uh, uh, craft macaroni and cheese i've worked on houses i've worked on google i mean it's just crazy how they were able to pour what i would consider little knowledge or method that enabled yeah. me to actually be in some cases how do i say i would say i'm not smarter than people but i'm actually me me understanding that i'm dumber than everybody else enables me to learn very differently than every, everybody else feels like they know or they think they know. Mm. And I always start mm. from, I have no idea. <laughs> I love it. And I, I think call that it the, the gift, it's the gift of dyslexia. And I would say that it's a, it's a gift that I would never wish upon my children, but to, to realize that it is the single most unique thing that it enabled me to be who I am. For sure. And, and it's interesting because, and, and there's a lot to talk about, you're right. Um, and, and I think it's also around learning differently because there's a lot of issues around education and people learning and lifetime learning. And, yeah. and so we're all different and I learn differently to other people. And so there's that almost giving yourself a break. You know, there's other ways of doing things apart from the conventional sort of ways. And it's so funny because in preparation for this, I was listening to your book again on the way yeah. to to work and I have my other son who's at university, yes. 18, yes. we're talking about what he's studying. Yes. And then I remember hearing about the book again about um, before you go to college. Yeah, choosing um, college. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So now that was also relevant. So like, but but I think for our audience and, and yes. I think the team, you know, so what I almost really wanted was um, those unique insights of the power of jobs to be done could yep. be one or yep. like what you're saying, which is learning to build. So taking, you know, the, 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 the methodology for building an endearing company or, or building endearing customer loyalty or, you know, I'm not sure of the exact tone of the, so, the book, but I'd imagine it's something. Yeah, yeah. Like so, so what's interesting is that, so, so if you think about loyalty, right, it's actually, so how do I say this? Like, it's a very interesting concept of loyalty, but I, I actually think it's a false notion that we think people are loyal. And, and, and in the, the aspect here is like, so I was doing some interviews the other day around people who were um, with, uh, they were switching internet providers, right? Mm-hmm. And when you, when you talk to somebody, it's like, oh yeah, I've been with this company for 20 years and I moved. And mm-hmm. when I moved, the fact is, is I went and, and, and had, you know, like I, I just assumed I was going to use the same internet provider. And yet the thing is, is they made it so hard for me and I made them aware that I was, I had been with them for 20 years and I realized that I was loyal to them, but they didn't, were not loyal to me. And ultimately the fact is, is that at some point in time, loyalty is not, lo- loyalty is one of those things that it's almost like we, we, we count on loyalty, but the fact is, is a struggling moment can destroy loyalty in a heartbeat. And most, what most people don't understand is loyalty is way more fragile than anybody knows. And the fact is, is like to try to count on loyalty is actually kind of a miss is a misfortune. What you want to do is as long as you're helping people make progress, they will be loyal. And the moment you actually hinder them from making progress, they will not be loyal. So loyalty is an effect, not a cause, Right. And so what we want to do is work on the causal mechanisms, not, not just try to understand the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so part of this is to say, how do we cause loyalty? And, and what you realize, so for example, I'm working on a book now around employees and basically how do people create more fulfilling work for themselves? And ultimately an employee will be loyal as long as you're helping them make progress. The moment they feel stuck, the moment they feel overmanaged, the moment they feel that they're, they're incompetent, the moment that they're bored, they will leave because they're struggling. And so, so what we don't understand is that it used to be the fact is, is most people won't quit their job because they can't find a new one. But at least here in the U.S., there's more work than there are people. And so we have this notion, they have, a, they have a phrase called the great resignation where people are resigning on all these different behalves. But the reality is what they're doing is they're finally deciding the work they want to do as opposed to the work they had to do. <laughs> right? And so it's so true, right? I mean, what you're saying is if there's a struggling moment, they're not going to be loyal. That's so right. And, and, and well, and to be honest, that struggling moment is an opportunity for somebody else. And so that anytime people struggle, it's an opportunity for everyone. This is, this is, the, this is kind of the, the paradox. We keep thinking if we satisfy, right, the fact is, is we're, people will be loyal. But the reality is like it's, it's just not true is that, that I can be satisfied in one situation and another situation where I struggle, I literally will ignore you. <laughs> and so part of it is, is 
all innovation and all, all entrepreneurs. Like I actually like the idea of frugal innovation. I love that. I, in Detroit, we're very frugal here as well. And what you will end up realizing is if there's only three or four things I have to do to satisfy somebody, that's way better than trying to have a hundred things. And corporate innovation is the over-engineering part. And, and frugal innovation is actually where it's at. But the, the way I think uh, Jason Fried says it best, you're better off with a kick-ass half than a half-ass hole. <laughs> right? <laughs> And so a lot of times we end up putting a whole bunch of stuff together that kind of works, but it doesn't work versus like, if you look at really successful products, they're really good at three or four things only, which is frugal. Like think of the, mm. the iPhone when it launched did not have any messaging and the battery life was horrible, yet it still took off because it, it actually fulfilled the requirements of putting a, a PDA, a phone and uh, internet and music all in one place. It was easier than carrying four devices. I remember those days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but to be honest, what's interesting is it wasn't that long ago. Here's, here's the craziest part is that they were insightful enough to really understand that what the biggest struggling moment was not the music on the iPod. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, kind of how to serve it up. It was actually, how do I get the music onto the iPod? <laughs> and how do I get, and, and it's the, the biggest innovation for Apple across the, everything was the way it actually handled the music industry to literally figure out a new distribution channel that competed with radio. It competed with albums and record stores. It literally disrupted everything because it made it, you could buy one song at a time. Right. And, and to be honest, the industry resisted it, but at the end of the day, People are listening to more and more music than they ever have. Consumption has gone, you know, 10 X because of Apple. Mm. Yeah. So this is the thing is I'm just a regular guy. And like, I, I like, we, we, you know, we, we both, you know, bike to work, walk to work, whatever we did, like we're just regular people and you're just trying to make the best of your life. And so my thing is, is that like, I didn't set out with the goal of, you know, doing all these things. And to be honest, I didn't even set out to be an entrepreneur. Somebody asked me the other day, I says like, you know, when did you decide to be an entrepreneur? And I basically told them, I never really decided. I had no choice because I was dyslexic and trying to go in through HR on a, through a resume and going through this traditional channels, I couldn't get a job. And so people could hire me on a part-time basis to solve problems, but they could never hire me as an employee because I couldn't get through the door. All right. And so the way that somebody asked me, well, how did you, how did you study at Harvard? I said, it was pretty simple. I became friends with Clay. I helped Clay with a couple of things. He had let me sit in some classes. And then ultimately I was able to go in and be, 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 uh, you know, uh, uh, monitor classes. Like I never was able to go through the front door. <laughs> right. Crazy. I figured, I figured out how to, you know, and then when I got there, the thing is, is they, they, they literally said, Oh, you're dyslexic. They gave me a reader and a writer. So all I had to do was sit in class and listen and talk. It was amazing. I was going to ask, how did it work? Because we know that you struggled with that. And, and I told my son and he asked me, like, how, how is it that you did get through university? Yeah. So, so here's the thing is I can see math. Math, I can do, like, to be honest, math is my first language. Everything is an equation of some sort. 
It's all about relationships and cause and effect. And, and you also and, draw as well, right? And I, yeah, I draw. I saw, so here's the thing: is I can, yeah. I can write. I can write because I, I actually know what a B is, and I can, I can write things out. I can't actually read what I write. So, so here's the thing: for your son, one of the things to think about is what my mom did for me was she slowed it way down, and she said, "Look." Here's like, so in third grade, I'll never forget this is like, what happened is, is that I was hiding it even before my mom knew it. And what would happen is my mom would read a book and I'd memorize the book. And so when I go to read a book, I could just literally memorize somebody else reading it to me so I could play it back. So what I have is I have what they call an input problem. So my mom looked at me and she goes like, what do you see when you see a paragraph? She'd show me a page in a book, like, you know, see, see, uh, you know, Dick and Jane run, whatever. Right. And I, the first thing I'd say is she goes, what do you see? I'm like, really? She goes, yeah. I say, I see the spaces. She said, what? I said, yeah, I see the spaces between the words. I don't see the words. I see the spaces. And she's like, well, that's interesting. And she's like, okay. And so can you tell me what this word is? And what we found out is that I can't see words that are seven letters or less. Because the way my eyes work is I actually see the three letters at the end and the three letters at the beginning and anything shorter than that, everything gets combobulated, right? And so what happened is, is she said, look, she gave me a red pen and she said, circle the five largest words on that page or in that paragraph. And I would, and she goes, All right, I want you to sound them out. And so I'd sound them out. And so my vocabulary is very, like my auditory vocabulary is very large. So I could figure out large words. And then she'd go like, what would these five words have in common in this paragraph? And so what my mom was actually teaching me is pattern recognition. Wow. Didn't even know it. Crazy. So, this is, so this is where all of a sudden I can actually, like I can make sense of a book and I can turn through a book. The, the interesting part is because I have an eidetic memory, I can actually recall the first five words in the first paragraph of a book to the last five words in the last paragraph in the book. And I actually can pull it all together. So if I turn through a book three times, I'll actually know the book as well, if not better than you. But I don't mm. read it in any conventional way. And, and part of oh. it was I kept trying to learn how, like I spent 35 years learning how to spell and never was successful at it an hour a day. And eventually I basically said, look, so this is one of my big pet peeves is HR would always tell me what I sucked at as opposed to what I was good at. And they'd always in my performance review say like, you need to work on this and this and this and this and this. And, this. and at the end of the day, I finally got to be uh, in my mid thirties. I finally said, look, I'm not going to be able to spell. Like I'm done. I'm just going to start. My mom vowed me not to tell people because it was, it was, at some point it was a, it was a, like, you know, seen as a disability. And so she didn't want me to actually have people help me. She wanted me to do it on my own. And so, but by the time I was 35, I'm like, I'm going to tell people. And the moment I told people, they're like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense here. Let me help you. I'm like, Oh my God, really? They'll help me. <laughs> so, so this amazing. is where like, 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 so I'm a very big proponent of helping people understand what are their strengths what do they love to do? What gives them energy? What sucks their energy? Literally like the stuff that literally is like nails, you know, nails on the chalkboard, the thing that drives you crazy. And how do you link those two things together to then understand what's the work you should be doing? And once you find that work is not work anymore. It's just fun. 
I think everybody's looking for that. Well, I don't think there's one person in the world that. Yeah, but. But the, how do they? It, how do they get there? Yeah. So, so this is the interesting part. I think they get there by first of all being being mature enough to be self-reflective on themselves, and literally being able to assess who they are, what they're about, what they're good at, and what they suck at. And what I will tell you is everybody, everybody has some strengths. And what, what, this is where I go back to diversity and inclusion is that I hate accounting. I hate it. There are people who love accounting. Oh my God. They literally can't, they can't sleep if it doesn't balance because that's how they are. I'm like, please take my accounting. I don't want to do it. And so part of this is how do you find people who have diverse thinking and diverse abilities and diverse skills to literally then help you run everything? Because if we, the, somehow the way that over the last 50 years, we tried to make everybody good at everything, which made us Vanilla. have everybody be good at nothing. Mm. Right. And so this is where my thing is, is as I want to have people start to actually understand what is their own unique ability and skills so they can actually find the work that is fulfilling to them and how do they make a living at it and to be honest if you can't then how do you actually figure out how to find work to pay the bills and then find work that actually uh, fulfills your 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 purpose so like for example i just did some interviews around this where somebody who really loves to play music and they have a family but they can't really be in a band Right. Because it's like it's traveling and, you know, they're not they're not terribly successful at it, but they love to do it. And so one of the things we figured out how to do is to have them actually work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at a, at a factory where they make and they do t- three 12 hour shifts where they actually make more than enough money to, to, to provide for the family. So then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they can go play in, in, at the bar. And, and this way they actually have two careers and they're both fulfilling. Right? Is it the and, future? Do you think? Is it I about think, that? I think, it, it, I think it is. I think the reality is, is that the, it, well, it's, it's all trade-offs. And I think it gets back to the fact that, that we were taught that you're supposed to have one job and we were taught that you're supposed to have one career. And we were taught the fact that you should, you know, at some point ra- uh, raise up the ladder. And my belief is that, that at some point in time in the last 10 years, work has changed so much that we're able to actually figure out like I'll say 20, 30 years ago, you worked two jobs usually because you had to, because you didn't make enough money. Now we have people working two and three jobs because they want to. <laughs> right. And so, th- so all of a sudden it's like, like I, I know people who are working, you know, three different jobs, 10 hours a week each, and they're literally happier than they can be. And one of the jobs, I would say they're not tremendously happy about, but they make a lot of money at that they can then go do the other work they love to do. (laughs) And so part of this is to your point, it's the trade-offs that we have to make that help us understand these things. So if we, if we go to a startup, right. The, the, the entrepreneurs have to start to ask, what are they good at? Why are they, why are they passionate about this? What are the things they love to do? What are the things that they don't know how to do? And how do they actually kind of build the team to help them do this? So this is the frugal part, right? You can't do it all, but my belief is in, and I would say that I've always had to have a part, some kind of business partner, right? I probably had 10 of them over my career. 
but I have one business partner that I've been business partners with for, for almost 20 years. And, and we've, we've worked apart for three months in that 20 years. And we vowed we'd never work apart ever again. And he is my, he is my, his name's Greg Engel. And he is my exact opposite. So what I'm good at, he sucks at. And what he's good at, I suck at. And we complement each other so well that the fact is, is like at some point in time, we are way better together than separate. And, and that's so to important, me, right? It's to very know yourself. To know yourself. And so this gets back to knowing what you want to be able to do. Know the progress you want to make. Know the progress your customers want to make. And, and then build product that actually comes to your strengths as, as, and helps people make progress. That's what entrepreneurialism Bob, is about. But Bob... Um, like you said, you're quite good at this stuff. Like yes. people like me, we look at those things like, what are you good at? And maybe you're good at several things. Yes. And so sometimes you have that, um, I don't know if it's greed or, you know, there's too many things on the plate. Yep. And so then it leads to paralysis because yep. you, you know, you don't know which one to go for. And sometimes yep. having no option is sometimes better than having too many options because it. And so how does someone bring those down yeah. to, and how do you help them? Because I think you're amazing at asking the questions and really looking at action deeper, yeah. but you're not always on that to help people to so, do that. Is there a way that they can? So this is where, this is where it actually, it gets very interesting is that there's a paradox. The paradox is that most people can, can tell you what they don't want more than what they want. So my, my example is when you go, when you interview somebody about uh, a product and they'll say, oh, I just like, it needs to be easier. What does easy mean? And they're like, I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I don't want to think of like, they can't really articulate. And they'll say like, well, what's hard about it? And then they can give me 15 really detailed things about what's hard, <laughs> but they can't tell me what easy means. And so we spend too much time trying to decide what we want when the place to really start is to actually say, what don't we want? Okay. Where so don't what, we what want we're to not be? good at? What we're not what, good what at? We're not good at. And, 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 and cross honest, those off. Cross those off. So, like for example, one thing I'm not good at is consistency. I can I can build something from zero to a to to a ten million, but when I get to scaling, I suck at it because I want to continually change it and make it better. And consistency is about scaling and about actually making the trade offs to get more people on board. And what I realized is I'm really bad at that. And so after my second startup, I realized like I get it to a certain point and then I have to step out of the way because I suck at this. And so by knowing what I sucked at, that was actually the place to say like, now I know what I'm good at. And so, yeah, these so, are, so there's, things, so there's, right? so there's, there's a book here. Let's see, where is it? It's uh, this one. There's a, there's a little secret around this book. This book is called the uh, seven, uh, basically the strength finders, right? Yeah. yeah. You know this book? Do yeah. you know this book or no? Yeah. I'll go give it as a present. Yeah. So here's the thing is, is what I'm most interested when you take strength finders is the bottom five. Most people want to talk about the top five strengths. Most people go like, Oh, I knew that. I want to know the things you suck at. I want to know the, the, the bottom five that are really the things you don't, because then I want to talk about your work and how your work 
and how it matches to the bottom five. And what you start to realize is all the energy sucking comes because you're not good at those five and your job requires, think of it this way. I need a, I need an executive who can, you know, see the big picture, be very strategic, but also build a detailed plan, manage other people and understand how to be adaptable. Like that's a unicorn who, I don't know anybody who can do those. Two <laughs> right. And so what happens is, is HR is literally built a list, a wish list of what we want people to do. And then it becomes a unicorn situation of trying to find the exact right pick who can do all these things, but we don't understand the physical limitations of somebody who's a really good big picture thinker is usually not really good at execution. <laughs> and what's funny is the people who get promoted, right, to, to an executive position are the people who are good at executing. And so we expect the people who are executing to be big picture thinkers because they got promoted. That's not true either. <laughs> and so part of this is really being able to understand yourself. And what I would say is, at the same time, the more you can understand your customers, the more you can understand yourself. And so it's, it's, it's one big thing of understanding what motivates you, your customer, your employees, motivation and understanding what causes people to make changes and to adapt is what's most important. You know, what comes across a lot now is how counterintuitive what you're saying is to conventional things. And so it's almost... How do you get away with, with these counterintuitive viewpoints? Because they are so compelling when you say it. But yeah, yeah. It, so, really, so, it takes someone brave to, to, to take on the might of convention. So this, this gets back to my mentors, right? My, my, the four. So I, I learned about um, a concept, and it's, it's called, the concept is called negation. And negation is where you, you say something that everybody shakes their head at, and then you, you add a statement at the end that makes everybody kind of go like, huh? And when you think of, um, you know, both Clay and Deming, Deming, one of Deming's favorite one is he'd say, he'd say the best way to improve quality is to get rid of inspection, right? And so if you think <laughs> about that for a second, like you, you think about it, like the best way to improve quality, okay, got it, is to remove inspection. You go, wait, wait. The way I actually put quality into things is I inspect. So what, what does he mean when he says to get rid of it? Like I, like, I don't understand. And so this is where you're causing people to think. And so Clay would always say, Clay's version of negation is, look, the, the people who actually cause the largest companies to tumble are the smallest people at the low end of the market. The people that nobody can see. And that is so counterintuitive because you'd think that, you know, the, the two big, you know, Goliaths in the, in, the, in, the, in the industry should be the winners. And yet Apple, who was not even in the phone market, came in and destroyed it for everybody. Nokia, BlackBerry, Motorola, they're all gone. <laughs> How is that even possible? And they came in at the low end. And so part of this is to be able to understand what was really going on and how to do that. And so what I've learned is that, that you have to be very precise about the counterintuitiveness, but it's, it's the, the, the world is full of docs and observe them and see them is what I think is important. And to realize like, we keep thinking more of the same is better. And what I always think about is like, it, it's always like, where's the, where's the, so like I said, if, if people are talking about strengths, 
okay, there's always the, the where's, where's the opposite, the weaknesses. Let's start with the weaknesses. So for example, one of the things I realized when you talk about how people buy, most people don't buy by selecting what they want. They actually eliminate what they don't want and then compare and eliminate the other things. So, so for example, one of the things I talk about in demand side sales is always give people three options and make one of them bad because you give them three options. And the first thing they're going to do is go like, Oh, option, option B, that's no way, no way that's out. So first of all, they made a decision. They know how to actually say what's not good. So then what they do is instead of now they have A and C left, they don't compare A and C to each other. They compare A and C to B, which is already out. And they go, you know, C's out. All right, we're going to go with A. And what you really realize is they don't actually pick A, they eliminate B and C. (laughs) Very, very clever. Right. And so there's a a lot of psychology to this though, right? Yeah, but but you can say it's psychology, but part of it is being observing and, and asking the questions like, wait a second, why, why, why? Because C is like this. And what you realize is, is when you actually understand when they give you the rationale of why C's out, it's all about comparing it to B, not comparing it to A. And so this is being observant in the details of the little things. It's, so there's there's a there's a there's a premise called a domino principle. A domino half its size can knock over a domino twice its size. Right? So the smallest of dominoes, so if I have 10 dominoes in a row, I could actually have something that's literally this big knock over something this big. And so part of it is nobody is following the line of dominoes that have to fall for people to do something. And so I call it simplicity on the wrong side of complexity. They try to, they try to boil it down. They try to distill it. And what they don't do is they, they get to an average of something as opposed to the essence of something. And so this is where like, and again, part of this is, is uh, I'll say my gift of dyslexia is I, ha- I can't learn through books. I have to learn through observation. It's a gift I have to, and I have to ask, and I have to ask you questions. And so part of it is, is the moment you realize you can ask questions and people will answer them, you realize everybody's a teacher, <laughs> right? Sure. And you don't have to have all the answers because they're going to give it to you. No, but here's the thing is that's the other part. So my, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite is, is always to go is to compete against what I call the A students, the A students. Students typically almost always when they get A's that they, they might've studied and they might've studied hard, but most, most A students are just naturally smart and they don't actually know how they learn, but they do know that they have to have the answer because they don't want to be wrong. And for me, I know I'm going to be wrong. So guess what? I'm going to literally start right away. So I, I went to Stanford in the D school and one of the things I just remember very vividly is they gave us a, a design project to go do and, my first thing is I'm like, okay, read the directions. Everybody else is, is thinking about it. I'm like, I'll be right back. And I literally went and found all the resources that pos- I didn't know if we were going to need it or not, but, but like they, the, the way that the thing was written is we could only use things in the room. So everybody else is trying to think it through. And I went and basically hoarded all the resources. So then by the time we got to it, it's like, okay, we're going to build this thing three times. We're going to, we build like three iterations of it where everybody else was trying to, 
build the right one first. And ultimately we were able to kind of build one that was the, I'll say the least expensive and the most productive on the assignment, because at some point in time we had three iterations. And I actually know that I will never be right out of the hat where a students, they have to be right out of the hat. They, they, they have a hard time dealing with being wrong. How do you help them? Because we've all, we've all got them in our organizations, right? Yep. Well, we should so, have. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, no, we, 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 do, we do have them. And so part of it is to realize is, is the first thing is to have those people take a step back because right and wrong, especially in academia, is very isolated. So like in this realm, this is the right answer. And in this realm, this is the right answer. But in this realm, like light is a wave and a particle at the same time. There's no right. These are two very useful theories. Neither one is right and neither one is wrong. And so part of it is to realize like, like it's okay to have two answers. And so in, in my book uh, that's coming out called the, the, the five skill or the, uh, the five skills of an innovator, it's, it's, it's really this aspect of like empathetic perspective. How do you actually have them look around the problem or look around the solution and, and see it from so many different perspectives because now you actually connect the other dots. And so part of this is to realize like, it might be right in this condition, but where's the conditions where it would be wrong? And so it's helping people understand the contextual aspects of answers. Because at some point, if I'm never wrong, I'm actually not learning. So where are you wrong? I love the, the the question side of things because I think it's like I don't know even for coaching and listening to what you're saying about the the it's almost like the theory of the and and or the or yep um, and yep. why that's so important to not position yourself not it's almost like you you you're putting yourself in a corner where you're gonna lose if you have a right I'm in the right you know no, you're, so, you're so, this, so this is the thing is is like. I, this is the interesting part is I don't think of like winning and losing. I don't think about good questions or bad questions. It's like, like I, I I'm trying to actually just figure out like, so what's what there's two things. One is I would say the irrational becomes rational with context. So most people will end up describing a situation and they'll go like, that's the crazy. Like, why would you use that to do that? Like, that's crazy. Right. And so most people will throw it out. And my thing is, is like, why would I throw that out? What, what context were they in that they think it was okay to take NyQuil to sleep? Because NyQuil is for when you have a cold or a flu. Like you don't take NyQuil to sleep. But out of that, they were able to disequil, which is a $500 million product. <laughs> so I, I always, so there's two questions I always have entrepreneurs ask around product. One is, where do people want to use your product, but they can't? The second question is, where do people use your product when they shouldn't? <laughs> and so my example there is, if you think of NyQuil as a, do you know what NyQuil? The, the, no, the, I'm, so, I'm, so NyQuil my wife's is very a, pharmaceutically orientated. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not really. So NyQuil is one of those uh, over-the-counter medicines you take here in the U.S. when you have the flu, right? Or you yeah. don't feel well and it's got a decongestant and it helps you with your cough and you know, it, la it lets you sleep, right? And so it's called, uh, it's called we, NyQuil, right? Have, and so 
the first question was, when do you want to take NyQuil, but you can't? Well, it turns out that that's what we created as DayQuil, right? So it's, it's, it's got none of, it's got some of the parts of it. It's actually inferior to DayQuil, but you can still go to work. <laughs> and so it's like a 20% bump and want to take NyQuil, but you can't, we create DayQuil. But then we ask the question of where do you, when do you take NyQuil when you should? And they're like, well, I'm not really sick, but I can't sleep. So I'm going to take NyQuil because it helps me sleep. Turns out that that becomes a new product called ZQuil, which is almost like 10 times larger than, than NyQuil. And so because people are struggling with sleep. And so you start to realize like there's all these different things where you can actually find opportunities by just understanding those two struggling moments. When do you want to do something and you can't? Or when do you do something when you shouldn't? And right. do you think, because I think that you get this stuff when you said that, right? It's so easily because that's been your life. You know, you're, you, are you it's, able to teach it, this let's, to people? Let's put it this is way. It, is it, it, wasn't, it wasn't easy in the beginning, right? But sure. right. And, and do you think that this is something that people can learn? Obviously, they is it something you you can teach? Is it something that you found that you're able to transfer these skills to other people? Yes. Is it that, is it a learned opportunity? That's the point. I think that's the point. Is that that what I'm what I'm out there doing is I'm actually trying to find other people. Let's say if if Deming and Taguchi and Clay, um, I was to them. I'm trying to find my version of myself for me. Like I want to find the people who want to actually learn these skills. And so the first thing I'm doing is, so the, the, the five skills is literally what are like, if I take all the innovators I've worked with and I put them in a room and I literally separate out the people who are extraordinary innovators or entrepreneurs, these, these are the five skills they, they, they have. Like, so one of them is called empathetic perspective. People who are really good innovators can see things from so many different perspectives, unjudging empathetically, like, Yep. This is how finance is going to, this is how the customer is going to look at it. This is what the distributor is going to say. This is what the engineer is going to say. Like they can see things from so many different perspectives and they literally can see problems before anybody's there. And to be honest, what's so interesting is if you really want to teach somebody that skill, the best way to do it is to send them to improv class, theater, art, this is where people don't understand the fact this is the, the power of things like the arts actually mm -hmm. are very central to how we develop new products because develop with people saying, oh, we need to build a plan. And then we, we plan when we're the stupidest. And then management holds us accountable to our stupid plan that we would have actually changed three months later, but then they say, I can't because they've already budgeted for it. And so it's one thing to budget on something you know, and it's different budgets or to plan something you know. But when you don't know, it's actually all about the unknowns, not the knowns, right? So and so what when should we, you do in the unknown? Right. And so part of this is 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 how do you frame the unknowns? How do you teach people to look for the unknowns? How do you, so for example, one of the things we do is, so I work with Ryan Singer from Basecamp a lot. And one of the things where, uh, Ryan and I are building, we're building some products right now. And it's like, the first thing we do in the first week is we build a Frankenstein version of whatever we're trying to build because we need to discover the unknowns of what we don't know about it. And most people are only building the things they know. And then they find out the unknowns at the end. 
And I want to find out all the known unknowns in the beginning. And, and is that because they fear failure? Um, no, because so I think part of it is the way that we were teach where we teach people is we teach people build it and they will come mm. and we teach things. And, and, and this is where I, I call it the church of finance, but it's that notion of, mm. of, of like, I'm supposed to be able to predict what I'm going to spend 20, 12 to 24 months from now. And then you're going to hold me accountable to my budget. And the reality is, is like, what I want to be able to say is I'm going to reserve capacity. I'm not telling you, like, I don't know what I should do in November. Do you? And the reality is nobody really does. Nobody can mm-hmm. predict COVID. And so part mm-hmm. of this is one of the things that COVID did is, is everybody's budget, everybody's plan went out the window and you went one of two ways. You either grew like crazy or you went out of business. Right. And so my whole thing is, is that like, we need people who are actually less about planning and more about being able to, to think in the moment to figure out what to do. But it's the church of finance that actually focuses us on quote, long-term growth. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I believe that, that at some point in time, some things are meant to grow, but not everything, not everything. And when, when it's like, so for me, the, I've, I've run, uh, I've done this business now for, 12 years, 12, 12 or 13 years. And one of the things I realized is that I was growing year over year and I was growing and I was adding more people and I got up to almost 50 people. And then I realized I hated what I was doing because I spent more time managing people than doing the work I love. Yeah. And I grew because everybody told me I should grow and growth is what we should do. And I should go to the bank and get a loan. And I should actually, and it turns out like, no, I love to do the work. So five years ago, I literally started to spin it down and I have five people. We do 20 projects a year. I love what I do. I now can teach and I can do these other things. It turns out to be like one of those things where like, I don't, I don't have to grow. What I have to do is I have to influence people and actually teach and train. And so now my thing is how do I actually do that kind of stuff? And so that's where I'm building software and writing books and all that other stuff. I will tell you this is that my, I think one of my greatest secrets is that I found a company called Scribe Media yeah. that literally helped me write this book, right? Like, how does a dyslexic person write a book, right? I was going to ask well, you. <laughs> yeah. So, so what they did is they they um, they they have a process where I literally had ten two-hour sessions to talk through each chapter of the book. We spent. We had uh, two four-hour sessions to design the book. Who's it for? What's the progress they're trying to make? You know, the job that, that people would hire the book for. What are the cre- critical um, elements that have to be in it? What are the functions in the book? We built it to a chapter. And then we have uh, two-hour sessions for each chapter. And then they just talk to me about each chapter. And then they go off and write it. So if you read my book, it sounds like me. I didn't write one word. I said every word in one form or another, but I didn't write it. They wrote it for me. And is what it, they is did is they, the AI or the AI. And so the what happened is they, they, they will, they will, they record it and transcribe it. And then what happens is they actually have somebody who loves to write, but doesn't have a topic pairs them with me. And so they love to do what they do. And I love to do what I do. And to be honest, 
you know, six months later, I got a book. So I've got a process to literally crank out a book every six months. It's crazy. And so I teach. And one of those things I, I, I told my, you know, a couple of like, how are you writing so many books? I'm like, here's what I do. And they're like, is that cheating? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not doing it through the university. They're not doing it. And oh, by the way, my book has been picked up at like, you know, 15 universities to set up as part of their business program as demand side sales. I'm like, I, I don't know, but my job is to get this stuff out of my head so I can actually help others. And so I don't really like, you could call it, it's like, well, somebody else is writing your paper. You can't do that. I'm like, I got it. Then, then call me a fraud and let's move on and read the book. <laughs> I don't, I don't care. Yeah, I see the picture of time and then I see the clock behind you and then I hear the chimes and I'm thinking, yeah. wow, you times your, your biggest asset. I say to yep. the, the, the team, it's time, energy, and focus. Yep. Those are the most so, important commodities I, I rate. So you want to see something? So what's, can you see that? What's that number? 2089. Right. 2089. That's the number of days until I die. Uh, well, let's hope not. <laughs> nope. so, so here's the thing is, is, is what I realized. So, so one of the things I, 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 I realized is that, um, Time is the most precious of all things. And my mom, who I would say is a saint because she, she mm. bared with all my problems, right? But and my mom would always say, when I retire, oh, no, that, like, no, we can't do that. Now. We'll do that when I retire. Well, my mom retired four weeks after retiring. She realized she had only, uh, she had stage four colon cancer and died four months later. Oh, I'm so sorry. Right? And I was 25 years old. And so I didn't, so it didn't all really register and everything else. But I, I, as I got older, I realized like, this notion of retirement and trying to fit things in and doing like, like, well, you know, we don't know when we're going to, but I did a, I did some research with somebody and I realized that some of the most successful people had all had a near death experience, like something like 90% or 92% of them had near death experiences and they valued time and they would accredit almost all their success to knowing how to manage their time that they had here. So they had a very concrete like notion of like, I need to maximize whatever I'm doing here. And like, I'm not going to let anybody steal my time. So, so mm -hmm. to me, I, I literally I took my mom's birthday and my mom's death day and added it to mine and say like, like, I don't know if I'm going to die that day, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to plan on dying that day. And so what happens is, mm -hmm. is when I started doing that, I realized like I have four children and at some point they're all they're, they're in their twenties now. And so I see them kind of, you know, once a quarter ish. And it turns out that it's one of those things where if I have six years and I see them every, every, uh, you know, four times a year, I'll see my kids 24 more times in my life. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and so now I go find work by them. I go teach wherever that like I have one in San Francisco, one in Montana, you know, one in Milwaukee. And so and one in here in Detroit. And so to me, I try to figure out ways to go see them or be with them, you know, as often as I can, because even, even if I don't die that day, the reality is like, I want to make sure that that's valuable to me and, and valuable mm -hmm. to them. And so it yeah. forces me to make this. So the whole notion of writing books is like, how do I get this stuff out? I only got 2,089 days left. How do I get this stuff out of my head? That's how I like, look, if I only got that much time left, you can call me a fraud but I got it out of my head before I died. So, ha. <laughs> yeah, you're winning. So, Let, other four let's skills. Go to this four, what, yeah, yeah let's so go. One, skill, one skill is um, uh, uh, empathetic perspective. 
The second one is the difference, what I call uncovering demand. Most really good innovators and entrepreneurs don't, they realize they don't create demand, they uncover it. Demand, mm -hmm. demand is embodied in people. It's not, the uh, demand is not embodied in product. And so part of it is, is that they understand struggling moments cause people to want to do something better or different. And so they know how to uncover the demand and then design products to match demand. And so that's one of the fundamental differences where most, most people are the arrogant of like, I build this product and it created demand, right? And that's, I just don't believe that. And I don't, that's not what I've observed. Well, they're lucky, right? And maybe they did. Yeah, they feel like they're great. like, right. The yeah. third one is causal structures. They actually are, are very curious and they want to know how things work. And it doesn't matter what it is. And they're, they're into the details of how things work. And they understand cause and effect at a very, very, very fundamental level. And they, so for example, we'll have a conversation and they'll say, God, you know, we got to have trust. And my, my, my comment back was, is trust an input or is trust an output? And like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if trust is an input, then I have to recruit for trust. And we can use trust this way. But if, if we don't have trust coming in and I got to tr have trust coming out, then I have to figure out how to create trust. And they're like, well, you can't create trust. I'm like, yes, we can. My belief is, and yes, by understanding when somebody said, yeah, I didn't trust this person and now I trust that person. My belief is there's actions that they did to create trust and we can sure. define those actions. And like, oh. And so you start to realize like most people don't trust salespeople. But if I actually interview people around, tell me about a salesperson that you trust and then tell me how they built the trust, I can actually see how trust is built. Yeah. It's like that, the book, you know, um, making friends and influencing people. It yep. tells you how to. Uh, yep. Yeah. It's the causal factor. It's the. It's it's literally a prescription to it, right? Yeah. The 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 fourth one is actually prototyping to learn versus prototyping to verify. What's what's so interesting is we're so obsessed with hypothesis building and testing that we forgot that we don't know, and that this gets to the notion of unknowns and being able to understand the unknowns. And that a lot of times we only build stuff that we know is going to quote work and then it doesn't work. And then we, what happens is we say, oh, the hypothesis was wrong, but we actually don't investigate like why didn't it work? And so part of this is to realize that I wanna build sets of prototypes to learn. My phrase that I use here is contrast creates meaning. Like the three things I give people the, by giving them three really different things, it actually helps them figure out what they want. And so how do I use contrast to help me understand versus con like, I think of AB testing as uh, I was told as a kid that AB testing was the worst, most inefficient and ineffective way in which to build something. Because in the end, you, you pick A or B, but you don't know why A or B is better. And you just keep building A, A, B, A, B, A, B. And, and in the end, when you have to change something for some other reason, it's a house of cards and it all falls apart. Without understanding why you can't actually build and understanding the causation, you can't make things work. And so part of this is I need to build things that don't work because it helps me understand how to make it work. We forget that. So we end up building prototypes just to verify. And so the fourth skill is prototyping to learn. Yeah. 
The fifth skill. We, we have ahead. a view, right? We have we have a viewpoint of something, and so we almost like our ego or arrogance That's gets right. in the way, and, and 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 it's egos, egos getting in the way, our own status and importance. So this is where I'd say humility, right? I don't know, mm. and and curiosity, why? And those mm. are the two essential pieces for all of this. The last one is actually mm. trade-offs, identifying, mm. managing, and making trade-offs. Most people don't understand because time is the most important resource. Most people try to optimize something, but that takes infinite money and infinite time. And when mm. you run out of one of the other, you always have to make trade-offs. And what you realize is that if I can actually frame the trade-offs, I can actually develop and launch a product way sooner and way easier if I understand the trade-offs I'm, I have to make. Yeah. And so most people don't frame the trade-offs. They get forced to make trade-offs. And they usually make trade-offs that don't reflect demand. They make trade-offs that reflect supply, meaning, oh, we'll cut short on this because it makes us more money, but it actually doesn't help the customer. Sure. Wow. And so one, empathetic perspective. Two is uncovering demand. Three is, is uh, causal structures. Four is uh, prototyping to learn. And five is um, identifying and managing trade-offs. I know you're going to go. And I know yeah, the I time's know. your, your, and there's lots more. And we're very grateful for your time. And we're seeing you. I will African do, Tech I Week. will do more. So if we want to come back, yes. my thing is, is, is my job is to, is to, is to spread the word of like, think of me as the vessel from, of these four, of these four amazing people who, who put their, their knowledge into me is my job is merely to pass it on. And so the more I can help you, the more I want to do that. Oh, Bob, you're amazing. And I, I've got, I, I want to be greedy. Is Please. that okay? I love it. I love people who are greedy. I want to be greedy because I've been itching to, to uncover something from you. As a company, we do numerous things and, and I'd love for you to help me. So I don't know what that yep. would mean. I, yep. I, like, I, I think it would be the most amazing thing, but we, we, one of the challenges, I suppose, that we're facing is that before COVID, we were doing live events, awards, conferences, yep. publications, all that sort of stuff. And then we pivoted, as you do, because yeah. it wasn't allowed. And we, and we sort of thrived in this digital world. And now we have a situation where a lot of our customers are talking around going back to physical events again. Yep. And so my thinking is, well, I want, you know, it, it, for me, in many ways, it doesn't make logical sense. But... You know, the thinking is going to the hybrid, but I cannot stop thinking about all the opportunities that digital and virtual give yes. organizations. Yes. I just can't help but think the future, not the past. And That's I was right. looking to see if you could help guide me yeah. to, so, so let's, to that let's challenge. Up, let us, yeah, let's set up some more time around this because I think, so this is, so I would say this relates to the same thing where people are talking about like, well, people need to come back to the office. And the moment that they say, oh, everybody's got to go back to the office, they have half the people quit, right? And they're like, wait, what, what happened? Like, nobody wants to come back. And it turns out the fact is, is like, so what we're doing is we're actually spending the time to say, what are the struggling moments that we have in virtual that makes sense for us to actually do physically? And what is it that we do physically where we struggle when we should do it virtually? And so part of it is actually separating the two worlds. So when we are together, we're actually doing way more than we were before. And at the same time, so my belief is there's going to be a hybrid of both. And the thing is, is what we want to be able to do is help people understand 
like if they want to learn about something, it might be virtual, but if they actually want to want to like physically do something or they want to actually, you know, interact or they want to have what I want, it's like different ways. And so you start to realize like, when do they want to come together and when do they want to be apart? And my belief is there are certain people types, if you will, that, that want to be more social and miss it desperately. But they're not the ones who are, let's say, that's not everybody. And so how do we actually understand the struggling moments wrapped around all of this? And so my thing, my challenge to you back would be find the struggling moments that people have around virtual and find the, the struggling moments around people wanting to come together, but, but they're afraid. And that will mm. actually be, that will help lead you to the answer. I've got the one, not the other. Got it. All right. I got it. Cheers. Yeah, Lovely. Yeah. Thanks well, so much. Network, the,